So our text today is a very familiar parable from Jesus that most of us know very well. It seems a very simple and straightforward story. It's very easy to get the gist of it, just with a quick reading. There's so much more depth and meaning in it than there is apparent when you first read it. We often take it for granted. This is probably the fifth, maybe even the sixth time I've preached on this parable. And it's constantly evolving as I myself learn more about it as I go in much deeper. So my prayer to you all this morning is that you might look at this story with fresh eyes and learn something new that helps draw you closer to Jesus Christ, our Savior. So let's have a little dig into it. Firstly, who, who is Jesus talking to? Well, if you go to chapter, the start of chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it tells us, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's one group. The second verse, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered to themselves, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. That's the second group. So we have sinners and tax collectors, and then Pharisees and teachers of the law. So that's important, okay? So I'd like you to remember that. Now you can almost picture the Pharisees and the teachers of the law standing together, apart from everyone else, towards the back, over to the side maybe, as they mutter among themselves. They weren't just keeping their distance from all those unclean, impure sinners, but Jesus also. Jesus wasn't just welcoming to these sinners. He was eating with them. Now, to sit and eat with someone was a huge token of acceptance indeed in these days. The Pharisees were wondering, why was he even reaching out to these people? Well, I suppose clearly his teachings must be wrong. He can't possibly be speaking the truth to them because they never came to their services, did they? But I don't think any of us can imagine the Pharisees welcoming them with open arms at all, can we? Now, most Bible versions and most people refer to this parable as the prodigal son or the lost son. But Jesus starts with the words, there was a man who had two sons. Two, not one. But the younger son says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. He wants his inheritance, and he wants it now. He's basically telling his father he wishes he were dead. He wants the father's things, minus the father himself. On rare occasions, a father may divide his estate if he chooses to retire, for instance, but it's his choice. Here, the younger son is initiating the division of the estate. Not done. Not done at all. Now, in this culture in the ancient Near East, the father would have been perfectly justified in physically driving the son away, banishing him forever. His authority as the head of the family has been arrogantly disregarded by the son, hasn't it? But the father's response... It's totally unexpected. What does he do? He immediately divides his property in between them. Now, as the younger son, 
he would have been entitled to one-third of the estate because in the patriarchal society, the elder son would have received a double portion, giving him two-thirds of the estate. So in order to make the third payment, the one-third payment to the younger son, the estate would be torn apart. And that this would have greatly affected the father's own wealth and his standing in the community. But there's no hesitation, none whatsoever. Now this father that Jesus is talking about in the parable, there's something different about him, isn't there? So once he gets what he wants, the son sets off for a distant country and there squanders his wealth in wild living. Hence the term prodigal, which means spending money on resources freely and recklessly, being wastefully extravagant. He goes far, far away where nobody knows who his father is. He's cutting off completely, isn't he? Going it alone, wanting to be his own man. He wants to be able to say, I did it my way. And that never turns out well, does it? Things may go well for a while, or at least appear to. That's what's happened in my life when I've tried to go it alone. It doesn't work out well. So what happens to him when he tries to live outside of his father's authority? We may think, this is great. I'm doing far better by myself. I don't need someone else telling me how to live my life. Thankfully, for me, when I've gone off like this, and I and most people haven't ended up quite as badly off as this younger son has. He's lost everything. And now a famine has come along to top it all off. He ends up hiring himself out to a citizen and feeding pigs. And these pigs are eating much, much better than he is. Now the son, of course, is a Hebrew, a Jew. And according to Mosaic law, pigs were unclean animals. So apart from the fact that Jews couldn't eat pigs or use them for sacrifices, in order to protect themselves from defilement, they wouldn't touch them or even go near them if they could. So for the son to stoop to feeding pigs was massively, massively humiliating. And then to even consider eating the pods was to be degraded beyond belief. He's truly gone as low as he can go. He, and often we, have to hit rock bottom before we come to our senses. Excuse me. He realizes that while he is starving to death, his father's hired servants are eating better than he is. They've got food to spare. The realization of how wrong he's been, the mistake he's made, finally dawns upon him. In verses 18 and 19, he says, I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. He's been humbled and is now repentant. 
There's a big risk in returning home for him, though. There's a risk of being stoned to death by the villagers. In the culture then, that is what he potentially faced. So the risk of possible death outweighed the almost certain death from starvation. So he got up and went to his father. Now listen carefully to this next little bit of verse 20. I love this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And that's really something, isn't it? I, I, I just love that sentence. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Those 33 words say a lot more than we see at first glance. The son was still a long way off when the father saw him. So doesn't this imply that the father was actively watching out for him? I don't think he just happened to glance up one day and goes, oh, there's my son there. No. He was there watching and waiting eagerly with anticipation. He was longing for his son to return. He never, ever stopped loving him, despite what the son has done. This father is different, very, very different than the culture expects. He sees the son and is filled with compassion for him. You think of Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love of the Father, the love of God, is greater than anything the world has to offer. In our story, the Father now humiliates himself. He lowers himself. He runs to his son. He runs. Young children run. Youths run. But men of his age and stature, they don't run. Any watching villagers or servants would have been shocked beyond belief at the sight of the father to run it out to hitch up his cloak, bearing his legs, humiliating himself. He runs to the son. Older men of his stature, they just don't behave like that. And the people that Jesus was telling this parable to would have known this. They'd have known what he was saying. Just what is going on? Not only run into his son then, he goes on to embrace and kiss his son, a very, very public show of affection. The villagers watching, the hearers of the parable, their expectations would have been for a totally, totally different outcome. Some of the villagers quite possibly were getting stones ready, expecting the stone in. The son starts to speak to the father. 
to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father seems to take no notice of this at all, does he? He immediately instructs his servants to fetch the best robe and put it on him. Well, the best robe, of course, would be the father's own best robe. He's covering the dust and the filth of the son with his own robe. The ring he called for would most likely have been the family seal, a very important symbol. And when you think Jesus doesn't waste words when he speaks, so every detail has got a deeper meaning behind it. Back then, things were done far more formally than in the parable. The father would receive any guests in their best rooms or their best tent, wearing their own best robe, surrounded by family, surrounded by servants and hired hands, showing off their wealth. But God's love changes everything, doesn't it? His love turns the world upside down. He calls for the fattened calf to be killed in order to hold a celebratory feast. The fattened calf is the most expensive meal. The entire village will be there. This is the greatest day of the father's life. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The son is restored to full sonship. He expected to return as a hired hand, but is regranted sonship at a stroke. And this sonship is available to us through faith in Christ Jesus, as it tells us in Galatians. We see no condemnation, no guilt trips, no finger waving, just pure, unconditional love. And as Romans 8.39 tells us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not the end of the story, though. There's another son, isn't there? The older brother, who appears to have stayed close to the father. Has he, though? Well, yeah, in the physical sense, he has. He's been out in the fields, so he doesn't know what's been going on. When he gets near the house, he hears music and celebrations. So he calls a servant over and asks him what's going on. But what he's told makes him very angry indeed. He refuses to join in the celebrations. He stays outside. Once again, the father does the unexpected. He ignores the usual formalities and goes outside to plead with his son to come in and join the celebrations with them. But the son, he doesn't want to know. His response just shows total disrespect for the father. It's almost as if he's poking the father in the chest as he says angrily, Look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never ever disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours 
who has squandered your property with, pro- with wild women and wild living comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. Son, the eldest son, he's been there all these years with the father. And it's not out of love though, is it? You can see that clearly in his words. I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. This son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours. There's, there's no sense of relationship there, no sense of respect, and definitely no sense of love. Why is he there? Well, just like his younger brother at the start, it seems as if he's only really there for what he can get. His brother's sin is more open for all of us to see. He breaks the rules. But the older brother, well, he appears outwardly to be very good indeed, doesn't he? Keeping all the rules, obeying the father. Ultimately, they both want the same things. They want what the father has, not the father himself. Both sons are lost. Both sons are alienated. The youngest son said, give me. The older son says, you owe me. But the older son's heart is harder than his brother's, unfortunately. Because if you remember, the younger son, he humbled himself to return to his father. Now, sadly, we don't see that from the elder brother, do we? Listen to these words of Jesus from Luke 18, verse 9 to 14. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stands back at a distance. He will not, he will not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the younger son did humble himself, didn't he, by repenting and going back to the father, apologizing, wanting to become a hired hand. That parable I just said, we can see it with our lost boys, can't we? So how did the father respond to the elder son's outburst? His words, My son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Once again, we see the father respond differently than the world would respond. The father, once again, doesn't show any anger, 
nor disappointment, nor turn away. He doesn't turn his back on the elder son. What we see is pure grace. Come to the table and join in the celebration. You belong in here with your brother and I. The parable ends there, not telling us what the elder son does next. We can only guess, can't we? Now, if you remember at the start, I told you that Jesus was addressing two different groups. One, the tax collectors and sinners, and two, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And each show us that there are two ways to be alienated from God the Father. One, living a sinful life like the prodigal younger son. And two, trying to be a good pharisaical type, keeping the rules, obeying, but not out of love, just like the older son. The Bible tells us that there is no one righteous, not even one, in Romans 3, verse 10. And Isaiah 64 says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And then once again in Isaiah, chapter 53, Isaiah says that like sheep, we have all gone astray, each one of us. We are all sinners and we can't save ourselves. But we have a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And furthermore, Romans 5, verse 8 says this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't wait. He didn't wait for us to be perfect because we never can be by ourselves. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. This is love. This is grace. Amen.